So the five hindrances is the next part of the gradual training, is working with the five hindrances and um, developing our meditation practice uh, more fully by um, learning how to work with these. Uh, The hindrances are the forces in the mind that arise in meditation that hinder our ability to see clearly, to be mindful, to become concentrated. They're universal. We all have them. You know, from beginning meditators to pretty advanced meditators, those hindrances seem to show up. So they're, they're not something that we do that, it's not a failing when they show up. It's how the mind is. And uh, working with them, you know, in this practice, uh, you know, one of the really wonderful things with this practice is that we turn towards the difficult. And it's a practice that when the hindrances show up, uh, you know, we don't want to get rid of them. We want to turn towards them and embrace them, bring them in, and allow them to be there and understand them. And they go away on their own. We don't have to reject them, push them away, but we just allow them to move through. Another word that's used is the coverings of the mind. They, they veil or cover the natural clarity of the mind. The Buddha calls them, in, in this sutta, you know, um, imperfections of the mind that weaken wisdom. So when the hindrance is present, we just can't see clearly. You know, and wisdom only arises if we can see really clearly. We see things, uh, when the hindrances are there, we see everything from a very self-centered point of view. You know, I'm tired, I'm, you know, I, you know my meditation is terrible, me, 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 me. <laughs> you know, or, uh, oh, that person's irritating, me. And so it's all from real self-centered point of view is how the hindrances uh, 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 come up. Um, I like to think of them in pairs because I think they're related. You know, the uh, desire and aversion, I tend to think of those as uh, two sides of the same coin. Um, uh, I may have aversion to something, you know, like let's say it's warm in the room, and uh, I don't like it, but immediately what enters my mind is like, uh, let's open a window, you know, I want, I want fresh air, I want somebody to turn on the air conditioner, you know. So the desire arises, can arise very quickly from aversion. Um, and, uh, you know, and sometimes we approach the same situation, you know, from the view of aversion, and sometimes we might approach it from desire. You know, we might notice the aversion, and then, um, you know, we, we can relate with that pushing away the heat. Uh, but maybe we're already caught up in the desire, and so now we approach it in the clinging to what we want. I like um, something Ajahn Sumedha said once, you know, um, the spacious mind has room for everything. It's like the space in a room which is never harmed by what goes in and out of it. So it all belongs. Every one of those annoying, unpleasant things that might come up in our minds. The teachings um, 
you know, in some place say that all the hindrances arise through misdirected attention. And that they can be eliminated by directing our attention wisely. So, you know, in the same way that if I asked you now to change your attention from listening to me to noticing your foot, you can do that, right? And so in the same way, when we're caught in a hindrance, you know, we can shift our attention from being in it to stepping back and watching it and seeing it. It's a shifting of the attention. We shift into the wisdom of watching the hindrance instead of being in the middle of it. Even if, even if things aren't going our way, you know, we, we don't have to get stuck in resisting reality, you know, just fighting how things are. Um, you know, it's all about, you know, changing a point of view, you know, where we're looking from. If, um, if we were in the Grand Canyon, let's say we're walking down this uh, beautiful uh, path in the Grand Canyon, and uh, we see a cigarette butt, you know, so what happens in you? You know, what, uh, you know, did a little aversion arise? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and it can really easy be to go, oh my God, how could somebody do this? And, and you know, and offer, you know, we just can get lost in that, you know. Uh, and here's the most, one of the most beautiful, amazing places in the world. And we're all caught, you know, contracted around this little cigarette butt. You know, so it's like the shift, you know, how do we pay attention wisely? It's funny how often, um, you know, I heard this teaching, you know, throughout my years of, uh, you know, meditating and working with the hindrances, that, you know, the presence of the hindrances is not a personal failure. It took me years to believe it. Uh, for some reason, every time I got into a hindrance, you know, I would, you know, feel like a failure. And, you know, it took me a while to actually really notice, oh, that's really what, what I'm doing with it. You know, I, it, it just took some, uh, some time for me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we work with them from where we are. You know, uh, an hindr- hindrance might be really very obvious, you know, you're sitting here meditating, you know, really beautifully, and then you get a waft of, of dinner fumes, you know, of, of something really, mmm, that smells really good, and suddenly desire, once they're sitting over, I'm ready for dinner, you know. And so this, you know, it's a very obvious hindrance, you know, and um, desire has arisen, and you've, you're clinging to it. Um, but, you know, we can get really uh, just as obsessed with wanting a better meditation, you know, wanting, um, uh, I heard somebody had this really fantastic state, I want it, you know, and, and I'm going to try really hard so I can get into that fantastic space, you know, and, and not even see that this hindrance of desire is, is in a way of being, showing up for a present moment. So the mind needs a certain level of uh, calm and, and tranquility to be able to see clearly. And so the hindrances, you know, tend to prevent that calm. 
if we can if we work with the hindrances when they're uh, kind of suspended, it allows the mind to be very very calm and concentrated. But we can't force the issue, you know. What, you know, we the practice is about showing up for what there is, and so we we show up and we work with it. I think of um, three aspects in working with the hindrances. Preventing them, understanding them, and and working with them. You know, when we understand them, we uh, explore them, investigate them, get to know them. And uh, the last one is using a remedy. Every once in a while, um, the hindrances can be a hindrance can be overwhelming. I don't know if any of you have had that experience. Um, you know, um, I've spent um, two or three days on a, one of my long retreats um, just hanging out with lustful fantasies. You know, time went by really fast. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, it wasn't very useful, you know. And so finally, you know, it's like, okay, I, you know, i gotta, I got to end this, you know. I've got to, you know, this, this isn't... Uh, productive. So at a time like that, you might use a remedy if you can't, you know, move through it uh, by understanding it in the moment. Uh, but, but, you know, primarily see if you can always first, you know, investigate them before you try a remedy and get to know it. Um, <clears throat> we prevent the hindrances primarily by paying attention to our bodies. You know, as Gil spoke on the, uh, the, of the second training, you know, safeguarding the senses. Okay, that's when um, our experience touches our sense, makes contact with our senses. You know, we see something we like, something pleasant. And, you know, if, we, if we're mindful, we go, ah, oh, that's beautiful, that's pleasant, and no clinging. Or we go, oh, that's beautiful, and where can I get one? You know, I want one just like that. I, I love that Buddha. That's, you know, I wonder where they got him. I'm going to write them a note and, you know, and see if I can get one. And, you know, and suddenly you're, you're grabbed, you know. So by staying in the body and aware of the pleasant and unpleasant sides of our experience, uh, we prevent the hindrances from grabbing us, from, from sneaking up on us. Because all the hindrances, um, you know, tend to come from... Uh, uh, well, the desire and aversion comes from uh, uh, the sense doors where pleasant and unpleasant arise. And it can be a pleasant or unpleasant uh, thought. You know, it's the five sense doors, you know, of the external senses, but also the thoughts of the mind. You know, we might have this thought arise of... uh, Oh, this old friend of mine. Oh, you know, what a wonderful memory. And then suddenly, you know, we, we've gotten caught by, oh, I'd like to see them. You know, maybe at the end of the retreat, I'll write, you know, write them a note and try to get together. Maybe get a plane ticket and, you know, and, and etc. So a hindrance has a physical aspect, an emotional aspect, and a cognitive aspect. 
And so I think of it as uh, body, heart, and mind. And, um, you know, we work with them as, as they show up, as what's appropriate. Um, for instance, like strong desire, when we're clinging to desire, you know, we might, uh, some, sometimes we have the feeling of leaning forward, you know, towards what we want. Um, I've seen my hands on retreat when desire rises just kind of start moving off my, uh, off my thighs, you know, just going forward. Just a little motion. I'm like, what, what happened there? <laughs> kind of on its own, you know, when desire rose. Um, or you might feel in the solar plexus. You know, we experience these differently. And so often just being and connecting with the physical sensations of the hindrance uh, can be enough to, you know, knowing it's there, feeling those sensations, enough for it to just fade away. Um, Emotionally, you know, desire might uh, include some uh, wonderful excitement, eagerness, um, you know, or an effort to fix unpleasant emotions like uh, emptiness or loneliness. So, you know, some hindrances come out of uh, some, you know, very difficult emotions we might have that, that we're trying to get rid of, not experience. Um, cognitively, it may involve um, beliefs and stories we tell ourselves, uh, such as, you know, if the person next to me wasn't snoring, then I could meditate. You know, if if uh, you know the window was open, then I could meditate. You know, and 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 so on. We've got lots of creative stories we tell ourselves. So um, I tell a little bit about desire and aversion. So um, <coughs> desire is a healthy, normal part of our lives. Without desire, we humans wouldn't exist. You know, we wouldn't eat, we wouldn't procreate, um, we wouldn't um, you know uh, stay warm. We wouldn't, we wouldn't survive. We wouldn't plan the future. You know, wouldn't apply for you know for the next winter. Um, so uh, it's really a, a healthy, a healthy thing to have. So desire can arise. That's really uh, uh, just a very uh, neutral, neutral in terms of not clinging to it. Uh, it's when we cling to it and crave, crave it, uh, that we tighten around it that it becomes a hindrance. Moving, same thing with moving away from pain is part of our survival instinct. It's natural. Plants do that. They, you know, they move towards the sun, uh, away from the shade. You know, it's natural for us to move away from pain. Uh, but again, when we can't move away from pain, um, uh, you know, we contract. You know, we, uh, and we add a lot of suffering to that. You know, there's the pain, uh, the pain of the pain, and there's the additional layer we add of, you know, oh, it's going to hurt. So much more tomorrow, or it's gonna, you know, all our projections around the pain, and and all our ideas around the pain, all that extra stuff, 
it's, it is unpleasant. It might be very unpleasant. People can really ruin their lives, you know, in the relationship with um, uh, the craving, f- with desire. Um, you see it in addictions, you know, right? People, um, uh, people who get, you know, with drug addictions and, and uh, uh, gambling addictions, all the different addictions, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's really the same, this same quality of desire that we all cling to. There isn't much difference. It just happens that they, you know, that the way it's affecting in their life due to their conditioning, it's creating a mess. You know, and we have the opportunity to spend time and looking at this powerful clinging of desire ourselves, you know, and have the opportunity to work with it. If we sit with desire and clinging when it arises and on the cushion or in our lives, and we actually pay attention to it, what we notice is that it gets uncomfortable because we're not fulfilling it, right? And it's just, it's, it, there's a wave of it. And if you stay with it, eventually it dissipates. And the more we learn to actually be with it, uh, the less the tendency to get caught by it. Um, at other times. Uh, but sometimes desire can be so strong, it's really overwhelming. And that's when we might use a remedy. And um, um, so some of the remedies that sometimes, uh, I won't go into, we could do a long list of remedies, but I'll, I'll do just a little bit. Uh, for instance, one of the remedies for lust is to, uh, you know, pay attention, to imagine uh, if there's like a person you're thinking of or, you know, um, uh, just imagine the non-beautiful parts of the body. You know, you think about their saliva, uh, feces, urination, you know, just all the, you know, things that, um, you know, I don't like, I don't like thinking of it as, as gross, you know, I just like, you know, it's just the non-beautiful parts of the human body that we're not particularly lustful for. You know, sweat. You know, um, and and you know that can actually uh, kind of give us a little bit of, of distance. You know, and you know it's meant as a remedy. You know, when we just can't, we're just so caught, we can't do anything useful. Um, you know, if we desire something that's harmful to us, uh, we can pay attention to the consequences. You know, kind of spend a little time thinking about the consequences. Uh, for instance, uh, if, um, you know, you go to lunch and this is the day that they brought out the Mexican food and the chips with a lot of salt, you know, and you've got high blood pressure, right? And so, you know, do I have them? You know, I want them, I want them, I want them, you know. Okay, I've got high blood pressure, heart attack, stroke. Okay, no, no chips. <laughs> you know, so just focusing on that uh, can be really helpful. Um, at other times, we can focus on the impermanent nature of what we want. You know, how long is it going to satisfy us for? If you watch a little kid, you know, they get, you know, they're so excited about this gift, and, you know, they, they want this, this thing so much, and they get the gift. A couple of days later, they're bored with it already. You know, and, and you know, we might get bored with it even quicker, right? You know, so what we want, you know, wanting, how long will that, that chip satisfy us for? 
uh, an hour, <laughs> a few minutes. So aversion is um, wanting things to not be the way they are. You know, I'm pushing them away. And it can range from um, an irritation. You know, that person's breathing too loud. You know, just a little bit of an irritation. Um, to, to really, you know, hatred and to anger and, you know, and very, very strong uh, aversion. And, uh, or we might even turn it inward, you know, and, and um, I think some of you have done that, this retreat so far, with heavy-duty self-judgment, sometimes loathing, you know, uh, very strong, you know, uh, um, aversion that's turned inward, and not recognizing it as an aversion, it's a hindrance. It is a hindrance, but it's a deep, deep habit. So the path, you know, to aversion is that kind of that middle ground of really being present for it, just really uh, showing up for it however it is, and at what point we find it. You know, sometimes we notice an aversion kind of like at the beginning, you know, I don't, I don't want that, I don't like it. Sometimes we're just like way deep into it. Uh, and so wherever we find it, just showing up for it. Sometimes um, an aversion can be so deeply ingrained that we just don't notice it because it's kind of like the air we breathe. Um, you know, I remember a yogi um, was, was sharing that he spent uh, uh, days on retreat kind of feeling a wrongness. You know, just kind of like a, a something wasn't quite right. And, you know, he kept getting, he was kind of getting a bit concentrated. And there was this, just this feeling, you know, and he couldn't pinpoint it. After a few days of just kind of hanging with it, hanging with it, he realized what was happening was that uh, he had such a deep sense that I'm not good enough. You know, and that that was a really kind of the air he breathed all the time. That that's that was like right there in his whole life, you know, and it was just so beautiful when he saw that then, you know, it was so here it is, and he could actually see it and and uh, and and give it attention in in a very skillful manner. So if. Um, in sitting meditation, you know, uh, let's say we have like a tight shoulder, you know. Um, you know, we might miss that it's unpleasant and just go right into the aversion of it, you know. Uh, it's so uncomfortable. How much longer before the next sit, right? I think most of us have done that more than once. And, um, you know, so physically we can explore, the, the explore it. You know, explore the shoulder, go to the body, But not just that, you know, if we have aversion to it, we might actually have a tight abdomen or a a tight chest, solar plexus. Something might tighten up in aversion. So notice what's really there, not necessarily just the shoulder. You know, emotionally, when we're aversive, the mind's unhappy. You know, so notice that, that, you know, we're unhappy. You know, uh, here's this pain. You know, here's the sensation, and here's the state of my mind, which is like, you know, uh, this, this unhappiness. 
And um, cognitively, we might be thinking, uh, okay, when will this go away? You know, once it goes away, you know, and, and again, then I can really meditate. You know, I've got to wait till it goes away before I can meditate. Uh, so I just have to put up with it till it goes away, you know. So cognitively, you know. So we we look at a hindrance. If we cut, sometimes we need to look at it from all three points of view to really get to know what's really happening in the moment. You know, all three things might be happening. You know, and sometimes we just look at it, and that's it. It's gone. You know, back to the breath. Other times you might check. You know, you might notice the physical part of it, and that's enough. And then you're back to the breath. Uh, but other times they're, you know, they're, they feel really uh, solid. And so you can look in all three areas to see how to understand it, how to work with it. But, you know, it's not about analyzing it. So, so it's really about experiencing it. What is happening right now? Not thinking about it. What's happening right now in my body? What's happening right now in my emotions? What's happening right now in my mind? You know, what's my attitude? I want to say one one thing about working with pain, you know. um, With pain that kind of comes and goes, you know, that, you know, you know you're going to get up from a sit and it'll be gone. Um, You know, pain like that can be really worth, uh, we can learn a lot from watching that kind of pain. Um, but sometimes physical pain, especially if it's chronic, it's there all the time, can make the mind grim. You know, and when the mind's grim, uh, too grim, uh, it, it can't actually be present. You know, the idea of, of this practice is to lighten the mind, to bring awareness and light into it. And so if the mind just kind of contracts and and, uh, um, and locks into some like a real grimness, you know, of it. I'm going to, like, grin and bear it, you know. And that's all we're doing, you know. It's not helpful. Um, So often with people that have, like, maybe chronic pain, we might recommend, even though it might seem like the most compelling meditation object, we might recommend that you meditate away from the pain or include the area of pain in a bigger field. Uh, One of the things that I found very... um, very helpful with pain. Like, let's say my low back was really hurting a lot. Uh, I might feel the whole body, um, and the, the low back is a small part of the whole field of attention. So um, it can be really um, difficult if you lock into the area of pain when you have chronic pain. So another couple of things to do with with pain is that um, there's two things you can do. Basically, you can change your focus when you have pain. You can narrow the focus or broaden the focus. You know, and so narrowing the focus, you might just uh, really start counting breaths. So the attention is away from the area of pain, and you focused away. Um, Or you can broaden your attention. You know, maybe listen to sounds. Uh, just make it a broader field of attention. Or focus somewhere that's uh, pleasant in the body. Now, even if you have chronic pain, you see I'm hurting all over, there's probably some spot in your body that might be slightly pleasant. 
So uh, it doesn't matter where it is, you know, but it's just a shifting of the attention that might get magnetized to the pain, where the pain becomes her whole reality. You know, and, and sometimes we need to differentiate between the pain and our emotional reaction to the pain. You know, we hate the pain and the pain. They're two very different things. So, um, so another thing about aversion, you know, that, that's really useful. Um, if we, like for instance, if we have a strong dislike for someone or for something, uh, one way to work with it is to focus on, its, on their positive qualities. And um, an example I'll give you, um, there's a retreat I did at I, back east in IMS, and, uh, you know, when we'd all get in the lunch line, um, you know, everybody had to, there were 100 people, about 100 people on the retreat, and you had to get in through one door, you know, one of these nice 32-inch doors. And, um, and there's this one yogi there who was like really intent, you know, very, very serious. And he walked at, you know, the space of the slowest of the slow walking meditation with a hundred people in line behind him, uh, you know, wanting to get to the food. And, uh, you know, and you can imagine, you know, my mind is my, my first time back there, you know, it's like, uh, boy, this guy's self-centered. Boy, da, 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 you know, and you know, I finally I heard a teacher call it a, a vipassana vendetta, um, <laughs> and I'd look at him in the hall, you know, and it would be like, oh, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was just you know, and and so finally, at some point later on in the retreat, I, um, you know, I finally realized what I was doing, and, and I thought, okay there's got to be something I can appreciate about him. And I started thinking about how devoted he is to the practice. I mean, he's really uh, cares so much, you know, that he's really focused, you know. He just happens to not be aware, you know, like... like um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but it really softened me, you know. By the end of the retreat, I loved this guy. It was great. He happened to know if, if any of you are familiar with the Vipassana romance, you know, where you see somebody across the room and you create an imaginary life about them, you know, and, and um, you know, have a whole relationship with them and, you know, and all this, and you've never talked to them, you know. And, you know, that happens, you know. It's like, you know, our minds are, are so creative, you know. <laughs> so... Um, <clears throat> Next, I'm going to talk a little about um, sloth and torpor and restlessness, the, other, the next pair. And, um, you know, we want to develop a mind that's tranquil and alert. Um, and so it has both those qualities. When we have too much calm and not enough alertness, we get into the sloth and torpor. And, um, you know, they're kind of old words. A lot of people, you know, aren't that familiar with them. But in general, sloth refers to kind of the heaviness of the body. You know, have you experienced that? Like your body just, just doesn't want to move. The bell rings for walking meditation. It's like, 
really? Do I have to move? You know, it's, it's that kind of the heavy feeling. Uh, torpor kind of ref- uh, refers to kind of the mind, the tor- you know, the dullness, sleepiness, dreaminess of the mind. Um, and it's, it's not being tired and sleepy. You know, tired and sleepy is, no- is, is fine, you know, go take a nap. You know, and sometimes, you know, what I've used to differentiate between sloth and torpor and, um, and being tired and sleepy is I do a test fantasy. You know, so if I do my favorite fantasy and I perk up, this sloth and torpor. <laughs> um, and, you know, that works for me. It's a, it's a great way to at least differentiate. It, do, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, I don't still have to work with the sloth, you know, struggle a bit with it, you know, and, and work with it. Um, you know, most of us, you know, I, I know on the first day of retreat, you know, usually a very large percentage of people, um, you know, report back that they have um, experienced that. Um, and as I spoke earlier before of sinking mind, you know, with a mind that gets very, very dreamy, you know. And so there's two ways that we, we experience sloth and torpor. We experience it pleasant or unpleasant. So sometimes the, the, the sloth and torpor feels just, oh, God, I'm struck. Oh, you know, it's, it's just, I don't like it, you know. And there's other times where it's like, oh, this is nice. Oh, the sitting was a bit difficult. This is nice to hang out here, you know. And, and, uh, and it's really easy to just, it's seductive, you know, to stay there. You know, I have to kind of, okay, I really, you know, I'm not here to be daydreaming, you know, and, and doing this, I'm here to practice, you know. And so sometimes it takes a little, you know, um, you know, uh, kicking my, you know, mental ass, you know, <laughs> and uh, to get myself motivated to even want to get out of it when it's pleasant. Um, you know that um, you know how you really see this in. Um, Children, you know, when they um, they they can act, they say, "I'm really tired. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this." You see, when you go for ice cream, and boom, they're they're ready. They're ready, wide alert, ready for anything. You know. So you know, you know, the, when you look at the hindrances, you know, we just like we just do just like kids do. They're just really blatant about it. You know, I want that, and you better give it to me. If you don't give it to me, I hate you. You know. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and, you know, we're kind of the same way. We just are a little more sophisticated, at least outwardly. So when we have sloth and torpor, probably the, the first thing I like to do is to sit up straighter. You know, uh, posture can really, you know, gives us a little bit more energy. Uh, taking a deep breath can bring some energy in. Um, you know, again, depending how deep into it you are and, you know, maybe open your eyes. You know, when we open your, our eyes, you know, um, I like to kind of look down, you know, uh, a little, you know, towards the floor with a kind of unfocused gaze, you know, just letting more light in. Um, as Gil mentioned, you know, standing up, you know, standing up is a, a perfectly wonderful way to meditate, you know, and, and you can stand up and then sit back down and stand up and, you know, if you need to. Um, one that I've actually used, you know, if, if, you know a little, a little um, uh, I was so embarrassed when I did it, you know, because I'd heard about it once and was pulling on our ears. 
you know, I just kind of felt a little funny pulling my ear while everybody's meditating, and you know, and and uh, you know, and then I realized it was okay. You know, that's why the Buddha is shown with such long ears. <laughs> so, um, you know, in in um, daily life, you might notice sometimes if you don't have if you have a lack of direction, you don't. You may not have a lot of energy. But if you if you have a uh, a little bit of a goal, you know, like your energy. Oh, okay, I know what I'm doing. Your energy can can come up, you know. And so um, that's one time. One time I find really helpful counting breaths. Uh, you know, when I'm have if I'm heavy in sloth and torpor, um, you know, counting breaths. I can be present for five breaths. I can do that. You know, and so that, and doing that maybe a series of times is enough to bring me out of it. Um, you know, but also for some of us, you know, it, it's, uh, we might consider what we're thinking about when sloth and torpor comes. Because uh, sometimes, um, you know, if we spend time in thoughts of uh, regret and failure and these heavy negative, um, you know, self-judgments, uh, those tend to drain our energy. They exhaust us. So sometimes, um, you know, uh, we might want to really kind of be alert. What, what, what was I doing that, that brought me here? I started to sit really alert, you know, and what, what happened, you know? So sometimes, you know, we can catch this process. So with um, restlessness, you know, that can be, um, feel physical or mental. Um, you know, so physical, you just feel like you want to move, you know, you want to do something. And, and um, you know, sometimes a skillful thing is just to, you know, hey, go for a fast walk, you know, burn up some of that physical energy. Um, restlessness can feel unpleasant. You know, so the mind, uh, you know, we want to calm mind, and it's, hey, it's moving really fast, and I really liked it when it's calm. And so then we start having aversion to restlessness. You know, they talk about multiple hindrance attacks, right? And so, so that's, you know, we're, we're fighting it, fight, fighting what's happening. And um, it gets more, restlessness gets more and more the more we struggle against it. So the way to restlessness is to open to it, welcome it in. And, um, you know, the, I like the image of, uh, you know, you put wild horses in a corral, you know, and they're, they, you know, they're like really, you know, just, you know, jumping all over the place, you know, really un- kind of unhappy, you know. And, and the, you give them a the big, broad field, you know, and they just, kind of, you know, can run free. So, you know, in the same way, when we... Um, we can open up the attention, you know, and, and give the mind a big field to be in. And, you know, one way is like, you know, maybe listening to sounds, you know, that's a fair, really big field, right? That gives you a lot of room. Um, sometimes, you, you know, go to the whole body, you know, make, make it bigger. Bigger, you know, can be really helpful. Um, Uh, 
also, you know, when we're restless, sometimes, um, you know, um, you know, the, you know, the, the mind just jumps from one thing to another, and so we call monkey mind. You know, it just grabs this and grabs that, and you know, and and not, you know, there's no, not necessarily any logic to it. It just has this restless energy of the mind. You know, and. Um, uh, <clears throat> uh, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Lost my spot in my mind. Um, you know, sometimes um, uh, restlessness, uh, you know, we might do things like plan and replan something, you know, with a restless mind, just something to do. You know, we just want to grab onto something, you know, and, and so, um, you know, that's some of the manifestations, you know. Um, suppressed emotions can cause a lot of um, uh, restlessness because if we don't see what we're feeling, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the, the suppressed emotions are kind of, uh, you know, trying to get our attention. You know, and the other thing, you know, I spoke, I mentioned boredom before. Uh, often we get restless when we feel bored. You know, and the mind, especially in our normal, uh, in our daily lives, uh, is used to a lot of stimulation. Uh, you know, we're all talking to people, doing stuff. You know, the mind's very, very stimulated for most of us through much of our days. And so when sometimes when there's a real lack of stimulation, um, it can feel unpleasant. You know, and so we don't like that. You know, we call that boredom. But it's so, so it's actually an unpleasant sensation. And so we get restless because that feels better than, than that unpleasantness. So it's interesting to notice, you know, what, what's triggering the, the restlessness. So, you know, the primary, one of the primary ways of working with restlessness when it arises, I mentioned opening the field, but it's really going right to it. What does restlessness feel like? You know, what, how does the body feel? Is the mind, you know, are you buzzing? How, how do you feel when you're restless? Really going right to it, really right, explore it. What is it like in the body? What is it like in, in, in my heart? How do I feel about it? You know, am I hating it? Am I, um, you know, uh, have aversion to it? You know, and, uh, and do I have a belief that this isn't really meditation? You know, I mean, you know, do you have that, that idea that if your mind is busy that you, you can't be aware? But we can, you know, and that's, that's the beauty of this practice. You know, even with tremendous restlessness, uh, if you remember to just be aware and just kind of step back a little bit and embrace it and see it, you know, that's the practice. You know, turning towards the hindrance, turning towards the difficult. And um, I'll say a little bit on doubt. Um, Sometimes doubt can be the hardest hindrance to recognize. You know, the others, you know, it, it can disguise itself, you know. And um, uh, we can have doubt about the teachings, uh, doubt about ourselves, doubt about the instructions, um, you know, doubt about our ability to, to do this practice, to progress. Um, and questioning these things uh, can be useful. 
but not while you're on the cushion, not while you're doing formal practice. You know, uh, it might be that it's really useful to go talk to a teacher if you have doubts. But in while you're meditating, you know, if you're, I want, you know, I don't think I can do this. I don't, you know, every moment that you're you're hanging out with your doubt about your ability to do it is the moment that you're not paying attention to what is. You know, so, um, uh, you know, you can spend a lot of time lost in that. I have, I mean, I know I've done that and absolutely didn't notice, you know, just, you know, this is just what's happening. It's real. I'm, you know, I'm really in doubt about, you know, uh, about these things, you know. Like if my mind's going, am I, do, you know, uh, am I doing it right? Am I, you know, all these doubts that can come up, you know. And, uh, and oh, that's doubt. That's doubt. All I have to do is be here. Instructions are simple. Be present for what is. Show up for what is. Look at what is. You know, when we um, work with the first several trainings that we talked about, working with virtue, uh, you know, working with safeguarding the senses, uh, the sense doors, the um, uh, moderation of eating and wakefulness, every one of those really is, um, uh, you deal with hindrances. You know, with safeguarding the senses, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, clinging. <laughs> um, so, so the hindrances are like deeply involved in in um, in what we work with as we develop all the different aspects of this practice. So they don't just show up on the cushion. You know, we talk about in meditation, but they show up. Uh, you know, when you go do your work meditation, when you. Uh, go to bed when you, uh, you know, whatever we're doing, that's, they show up. And the more we pay attention to them uh, and are aware of, of how we react to the world around us, um, you know, the more we're able to work with them in, in the formal meditation. You know, one way of um, viewing mindfulness is that, you know, mindfulness is um, paying attention to what's going on right now in a non-reactive way. And concentration is getting the mind to, to stay focused where we want it. And there are two different qualities of mind. And so when we're doing this practice, we kind of develop, develop them hand in hand. And uh, the hindrances are kind of what show up, um, and, uh, and, you know, we have to keep attending until um, they relax, and then, you know, we're again coming back, focusing again, back to the present, back to the present. Concentration provides the stability of mind, the stillness of the mind. Mindfulness, uh, you know, allows us to see what's really there, you know, what's actually going on. Um, One of the um, prerequisites to the deep concentrative states 
is contentment. And that's really important. It's really important. When we're content, we're relaxed, right? You know, contentment isn't some, some big, you know, um, uh, high-to-reach thing. It's just like a, oh, it's nice. You know, just this kind of nice feeling of being relaxed and content. You know, things are okay. You know, and that kind of contentment is what allows concentration to develop and deepen. And uh, striving, when we're like, okay, I'm going to watch every single breath with the, you know, uh, full brow and, and tension. You know, you may watch every single breath, um, but then you wonder why, you're, why you know, you're not, you're not at ease. You know, you're not finding tranquility and peace. You know, so contentment is just as important as paying attention and keeping your attention steady. In some ways, I think it's even more important, you know, because with relaxation, um, uh, you know, eventually your attention will, will come. Uh, so, so really pay attention to the quality with which you pay attention. You know, it calms the mind, um, you know, brings composure. You know, feelings of, of delight, of joy, you know. So the concentrated states are really beautiful states that we develop. And we develop them through, uh, you know, getting to know the hindrances. Not trying not to have them, but as when they show up, of yes, these are part of the practice. And as we allow them in and and... Uh, explore them really openly without rushing to, no, I want to be concentrated, you know, just but be there with them, you know, and eventually the mind just starts settling, the hindrances get suspended for a while, and we can have, um, you know, a lot more of the deeper, relaxed, peaceful states of mind. You know, and working with them, you know, at first, you know, when we really start giving attention to this, we're really lucky to just notice them, you know, and usually notice them like when they're almost gone, you know. Uh, so, so appreciate it whenever you notice them, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's, we develop a skill with them. The more we notice them, you know, you're standing in line and, and the person in front of you hasn't moved yet and there's like four feet in front of them, you know. You know, are you feeling impatient? Are you feeling irritable? You know, are you, you know, what? It, it, we have so many opportunities. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> um, you know, so, so primarily I'd like to um, encourage you to have a friendly relationship with the hindrances. You know, to, to talk to them kindly. You know, it's, it's um, you know, hatred, high hatred, you know. <laughs> I mean, you can still, you know, it gives you a little bit of objectiveness when you, um, you know, uh, are friendly with them. You know, if, uh, if you make them wrong for being there, you know, it's very hard to investigate them to get to know them. You know, you never get to know somebody you hate. You only get to know the people you like, the people you're open to. And the moment that mindfulness focuses on a hindrance, it begins to transform it. It's, it's, it's really beautiful. So, so every time you've already, just by knowing it's there, you begin to transform it. So I'd like to end with um, a Rumi poem that to me really speaks about the hindrances. 
And I know many of you have heard this before, but um, I'd like you to close your eyes and just listen to it, you know, again. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for a new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you.